Hey guys, welcome back to the Drunken Scholar Podcast. This is the Wars in the North series. I'm your host, Devin Clays, and with me today, I've also got Levi Cardoza again. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Last time, we had ended off with the end of the deluge, and just to sum- summarize everything that we talked about last episode was essentially this period with the deluge would cause untold and unprecedented levels of devastation to the Commonwealth. And swaths of land are depopulated. The once fertile plains of Poland are just utterly destroyed. And John Casimir, although he was able to rally the people and prevent the complete collapse of the state, his reign ends up having a lot of political divisions as his reforms brought civil war and ultimately he is forced to cede a bunch of concessions to the Russians in 1667. If you guys remember towards the end of the episode last time I had mentioned that the Cossack problem was never solved and this is going to be especially important today. Now With this episode and the next few episodes, we're going to be discussing what's going on with the northern powers in this period between the deluge leading up to the Great Northern War and how every country was affected by it. Okay, and then what are are the dates then? Like for these next few episodes, like what are we talking about? Like from the deluge to the Great Northern War, how long is this time? This time period. We're we're gonna be covering a period from sixteen sixty seven at the at the end of the deluge all the way till the Great Northern War starting in like seventeen hundred. Um for the Swedes, it'll probably be a little bit before that because the Swedes pieced out earlier than the Russians did. So things will shift a little bit for them. But roughly we're we're gonna be covering this little period between like in the mid to late 1600s okay okay over this in the next few episodes and And john cassie's gone right well uh, yeah he's he's on the way out so okay so he's not gone yet i was gonna say we have to drink to the loss of john big dick a great man dude the last hope and so the thing is with this dude is that he ends up being really grief stricken. His beloved wife dies the same year he gets peace with the Russians. And, you know, with the Cossacks, you know, their, their demands were not met. And so the new hetman of the Zaporizhian host, he ends up revolting immediately and like allies himself with the Tartars. And these start off as some skirmishes, and we're going to come back to this. Is this a new, this is a new Cossack Tartar Alliance? Yes. It has been oh. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just throat stinging, bro, everywhere, running through the plains. I love oh, it. Okay. I'm yeah. drinking that. And so, you know, John Casimir at the end of all this, he's downtrodden due to the loss of his wife and like his entire 
all of his efforts throughout his brain just have seemed to fall in on deaf ears. And so he just falls into a dark depression and he decides to abdicate the throne the next year in 1668. And of all things, he decides he wants to become an abbot and goes to a monastery in France to live out the rest of his days. Um, he just can't help but be real. Yeah, facts. I okay. mean, all in all, with John Casimir, you could see him one of two ways. Either on one on one side of the coin, you could see him as who tried to save the Commonwealth and bring about the changes necessary to save the state. But then on the other side of the coin, you could also portray him as this royalist, power-hungry man that tried to destroy the Constitution and the very fabrics of the Commonwealth. But Which, if you believe that... Yeah, no, no. I got something for you. <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't agree with that, but I mean, that's <laughs> certainly a plausible take. Yeah, we'll allow free thoughts are allowed here, but yours are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Keep going, bro. <laughs> yeah, after his abdication, the Sejim decides to elect Michael the first as king, and this guy he is almost unanimously chosen by the Sejim. And it's not because he was of great character or a strong leader. He was simply chosen because people perceived him to be weak and that he would not challenge the golden liberties of the nobles. And this ends up backfiring because... Yeah, a figurehead king in a time of absolute turmoil. That's great. Yeah, Let's yeah, find the weakest leader we can for the worst times possible. <laughs> Like, cause it's like, um, you know, you would think, you know, the Polish people have only wanted peace for like decades now. And with the end of the deluge, you would think that that peace has been longing for that it would happen. Right. Well, no, no, absolutely not. Because the Poles or the Commonwealth, I should say, ends up being embroiled in another 30 years of wars with the Turks. Now, during Michael's reign, these Cossacks, you know, with their alliance with the Tartars, they end up going to the Ottoman Sultan for protection because they're not getting, they, they couldn't get their autonomy from the Russians. The Poles rejected their, their pleas for autonomy. But the Ottoman Sultan is kind of open to the idea. And so this boils over into full-blown war. Now, Michael, he ends up losing a series of battles, loses this first round of wars. And I'm not going to go too much in detail about these Ottoman wars because, you know, this is the Wars in the North series. So I kind of want to focus more on the Northern Wars um, yeah, we could get caught up in that forever, man. The Ottoman Wars are wild. Yeah, dude. Like the Poles go to war with the Ottomans so many fucking times. Um, yeah, it's just it's a it's a thing to do. Yeah, it would never it's end. just a thing to do. It never ends. <laughs> okay, yeah. So right, we're skipping <laughs> we're skipping the nineteen Ottoman Wars and shooting right back into where? Yeah, dude. And and so what we see here is like the magnates and the, the nobility of the Commonwealth 
are becoming increasingly frustrated because their weak king isn't winning wars, essentially. And Michael, he only rules for about four years until he dies in 1673. Now, Michael, he ends up dying of food poisoning, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So did my my guy on Crusader Kings 3, dude. It definitely wasn't my evil daughter. Yeah, food poisoning. Yeah. No, food poisoning killed a man in his in his prime. Yeah, dude. No, they got rid of that boy, dude. He lost one too many battles to the Turk. You can't be losing that Commonwealth yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah um, dude. A call is no call that can't ride. Yeah. And so, you know, he dies in sixteen seventy-three. And the next guy to be elected is John Sobieski. And this guy, this guy is the truth. Okay, this is this is borderline like the most famous king of the Commonwealth throughout their history. Sobieski. We're gonna have to drink a couple times of Sobieski. All right, let's take a good pull for old Sobieski. One hundred percent. And so this guy, he gets elected, <laughs> and let me just backtrack and cover some of this man's achievements so you can kind of get dude. an idea of what kind of guy this was. Right, so he had he had grown up going to school at the University of Warsaw. He was an avid student of the military tactics and strategy, and they also majored in philosophy. Mm. And, you know, so he's just he's a well learned man. This dude, he learned like six languages. Oh, um, polyglot. Yeah, and that's that's before he came king, you know. Oh, y'all, that was before, dude. That was when he was just a nobleman. <laughs> yeah, that was when he was doing dude. the bare minimum in his mind. During these Ottoman wars, he would he would also learn an additional two languages, being Turkic and Tartar. So this man, he's just <laughs> this man speaks it all. And when he finishes his education, he ends up touring Western Europe meeting various kings like the was the prince of orange and the king of england Uh, uh and so you know once this whole deluge thing pops off and the kemelnetsky rebellion happens and the king dies him and his brother they end up going back to poland to volunteer in the army and this dude starts off as like a lowly officer just in command of like say a hundred men and he does good work you know he, uh to the best best of his ability he achieves success he's a veteran of the the swedish campaigns the russian campaigns the the campaign to put down the tartars you know he he achieves success during the Ottoman Wars, he achieves success um, in earning. He earns the respect of John Casimir, especially during the Civil War they have. He sides with the Royalists. Sobieski sided with the Royalists. Yeah, Sobieski came to the aid of the king. Dude, he's just a real. I love this guy. He almost dies trying to rally the cavalry of the Royalist armies to prevent the rout. No, oh, yeah, across the river. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the old river routes. Yeah, that was a mm-hmm. black day. Black day for Poland. <laughs> yeah, 100%, dude. And I would say, like, you know, the achievement he's, like, most famous for is his victory at Vienna 
when he leads, you know, the famous charge of the Hussars, you know, liberating the Austrians. Okay, we're drinking to that, dude. That's for everybody. That's for everyone. Everyone stop and do what you're supposed to do right now. And if you don't have a drink, hypothetically, pour one out for the boys. Nothing's hard than that. One day I'm going to have like a 30-foot oil painting hanging on my wall of that, dude. That is the hardest. (laughs) That is like literally like an epoch in like Western canon. Like the the charge of the Commonwealth, dude. Like that, 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 I, I swear to God. That is what, like, Tolkien based the charge of the Rohirrim for, like, when they relieved Gondor, like, when Mordor was sieging it, and, like, the return of the king. Like, that is what that is from. That, that man's a fucking legend. You know, so, uh, so those, those are all of his, like, military achievements and tidbit of, like, what kind of dude he was. And for all of his achievements that he had brought Poland internally his policies ended up being a critical failure. There was, internally in the Commonwealth during his reign, there was there was divisions between magnates that supported the French and there was the other faction that supported the Austrians. With the threat of the Ottomans and the Ottoman Wars going on, it's no doubt he picked Austria as he enters the mm-hmm. Holy League with Venice, Austria, and Russia. To fight. Okay, hold on, hold on. Can we circle back real quick? Cause I'm lost. I'm lost. Um, so that Michael gets poisoned, but we're gonna call it food poisoning. Was he? So he was elected right after him. There was like no contention. Like, how did that go? Like, the session no, just got together. He like, was, he was elected the following year. To, okay, the following year. But it was yeah. like, like over. But it was like, was it overwhelming? Was it like a contentious election? No, like, he, you know, he was popularly elected. It wasn't oh, okay. as unanimous as, say, Michael was. Yeah, that's because they knew that he wasn't going to do shit. Like, he was just there to be, you know, the king, quote-unquote. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But okay. But but, so the, the, they, but the nobles, like, that's what's important here. Like, the aristocracy, the sedum, they respected and liked Sobieski. So he was, yeah. like, it wasn't, like, some crazy underhanded deal. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, he was elected. Okay. He had, he had risen up from the ranks from a minor officer all the way to grand marshal you know yeah. everywhere he went brought success so it you know it was yeah i mean at, at this point he said he's like i can i just can't help but i keep drawing i don't know i keep thinking of marcus aurelius and i know it's nothing like marcus aurelius but it's kind of like a little micro marcus aurelius like an extremely learned person a philosopher warrior king you know, like dedicated yeah. to the people, like he's going to do some shit that's not popular. Like the Marco Manic Wars weren't very popular, you know, but you got to yeah. do what you got to do for the country. That's where he's coming across right now. But OK, now, that I just, yeah, I, I didn't we hadn't talked about that or I hadn't heard how he'd been elected. But OK, cool. So he's yeah, elected. Yeah. People like him. It's not some crazy thing. Keep rolling. Bro. Yeah. You know, initially he's very popular, but the issue is there are various issues that pop up during his reign internally. One is the French versus Austrian factions. He marries a French woman, but then decides to ally with the Austrians. Okay. I mean, which is a shame because the Austrians take part in the partitions like about a century after this, but that's neither here nor there. Internally, his decision aside with the Austrians does create divisions amongst the nobility um, because this is like a hotly contested, you know, political item of the day. On top of this, 
he also tries to do the royalist reforms that John Casimir had done before him. And just like John Casimir, the nobles unanimously block it. Nobles are heavily against it despite his victories and all of his achievements abroad. And due to this, you know, John Sobieski, he has like these ambitions of pushing the Turks out of Europe and trying to reclaim all the lost territories and, you know, redeem the humiliations of the Commonwealth. But it's not to be because of these internal divisions, the magnates are like completely vetoing all of his proposals for these offensive wars, his, his expeditions that he wants to launch. But yeah, so he ends up dying in 1696 of a heart attack. Now, this is where I want to break for a second to go into what is going on internally in the Commonwealth. So previously in the series, we've gone over how the fiscal policy became corrupt and basically abused by the magnates. We've gone over how the session works and how its legislation became corrupt. And we've gone over how these marshals get appointed and that whole system ends up being politicized instead of based off of merit. But something we have not gone over that I really want to hammer home um, on this episode is like, why, why are the fucking nobles so powerful? You know, we've gone over that the nobles are powerful over and over again. And so in order to explain why the nobles are so powerful and why they're in such a weakened state, unable to change, we got to go back towards the formation of the Commonwealth and like what made it so great and powerful to begin with. And in this, it's the Calvary, right? We've said in previous episodes that the Calvary is super expensive and it's really badass. And so, but, but to do this, right. The, the, the terrain out here in Eastern Europe is, you know, vast plains and steppe land with sparse communities and forts. So therefore your infantry, you know, would have to march countless miles, slowing down the army and would consume a lot more food. So therefore cavalry warfare is the only way, you know, to get anything done. Um, yeah, that and to fight the nomad, you must fight like the nomad. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And the thing is, is like, to equip these cavalry, that is an expensive thing. And so the question is, it's like, okay, how do we pay for and equip all these horsemen? And the way you do that is by you have the concept of this citizen army, right? Where the citizens or the nobility are the cavalry. And so what the Poles decide to do is greatly expand the nobility right so this is like completely unlike any of the courts you would see in western europe if you think of france you think of some rich noble who has you know vast estates and laborers and stuff like that but that's not the case here so they expand this nobility to the point where over half the nobles don't even have any land but 
these nobles or citizens, we'll call them, um, these guys make up all of the cavalry. And, you know, to avoid those major costs, the nobles have to buy the equipment and get the training and all of this. So this is just a major expense that the Commonwealth is able to avoid. And this is what yeah, it's not coming out of it's not coming out of like the taxes, like the like the royal taxes and everything being turned into the king. That's exactly so it's a right. great. It's a great way to offset the national, you know, that, that that national burden on their, you know, on their economy. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Okay. And so this is like one of the big causes that leads the Commonwealth to being a great power and its rise in the first part of its uh, existence. Now, the problem is with this is like now you have all of these nobles. Now it's, it's no longer the late medieval period. Now we're getting, now it's the early modern period. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And things are changing. Tactics needed to change. And, you know, the Poles had obviously seen things that needed to change when Gustavus invaded, or Gustavus Adolphus invaded the Commonwealth. And the issue is, is like, Poland is unable to change. They, they edit their, their proportions of their infantry and cavalry, but these still needed to change radically. But to do that, you would be taking away power from the nobles and putting it in the king's hands. So what we're talking about here is the societal problem. This is no longer, this is, this is a, this is a, like an actual commonwealth. I, I don't know. See, we haven't talked that much about Lithuania and all this, but so I, I don't know how much this like really affects Lithuania, but this is like a Polish societal, like at the fabric, this is an issue. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, because frankly, what you're hearing is you have a ton of poor nobility, but all they have is this old pride in the fact that they are noble. They are citizens. And they don't want to give that thing up that makes them special. That's exactly right. Yeah, because, I mean, if all you have, like, you're just a poor dude, you have a day job, like, you don't have any land, all the land is in the hand of the magnates and maybe some, like, you know, like, moderate little holders here and there. But all you have is your spear, your sword, your horse, your armor... And the fact you're noble, and meanwhile, like, your son, like, goes and farms, you go and cut wood for money. If you give up, yeah, they, they start changing this around. It's like, okay, well, now I'm just a person. I'm no longer the nobility. I'm no longer, you know, that, that one yeah. thing that keeps your head up high. Exactly. And, and one thing to note here is that even these landless nobles, although they are landless, they are citizens. And the Constitution of the Commonwealth applies for citizens. It does not apply for peasants or people of other religions. And so, although you may be landless, you do have the you're you're protected by the Constitution still, which is something even the landless nobles want to. And so, let's pause that for a second and focus a little bit on this citizen army and break this down. So. We just mentioned that the citizens or the nobles comprised of basically exclusively cavalry, right? And you have all of the peasants and non-citizens serve in the infantry. And the infantry, thus meaning, is all going to be like tempted to be loyal to the king over the nobility. And what you have is this, this quarter 
the citizen army is divided into two contingents. In the first contingent, you have the national contingent, which is going to be all of the magnates' forces, you know, all their cavalry and troops that they raised. And then you have the foreign contingent, which ironically is all native Poles. Don't ask me why they fucking named it that, but it is what it is. <laughs> Dude, that's <laughs> a- a- aristocratic propaganda. Because in every other country on Earth, that's called the Royal Army. <laughs> that's what that is, dude. This foreign contingent, right, is all exclusively men from the royal estates. And these troops are comprised of both cavalry and infantry. And so up to this point, all of the infantry is exclusively raised by the king. And but the thing is, is like the sejim limits the size of the foreign contingent, how large it can be, because these the nobles fear the power of the king and want to limit it as much as possible, right? Thus keeping the kings weaker and more unable to challenge the nobles' power. And so what we see happen during this period is the citizen army changes a little bit. And more so the, uh, the foreign contingent, because the quarter army system, which was that system we had talked about uh, when we were discussing the fiscal policies, right, with, you know, one fifth of the treasury going to the army and then they upped it to two fifths. But in reality, the army was only getting a quarter of the funds it was supposed to get. Right. And so after years of this being ineffective there is a reform brought about and they decide to abandon the quarter army system completely and rely solely on a decentralized local recruitment. So now infantry is no longer raised by the King exclusively. It's also raised by the nobles. And this is to ensure noble dominance over the King to limit his power again. Then there's issues of the garrisons being in disrepair throughout all these wars. So the various kings, they decide to, they want to press the issue to renovate and, you know, modernize their forts. But to do this, you need more infantry. And the infantry of these garrisons are subject to being loyal to the king and not these nobles. So again, the magnates, they decide to decline this and block it. And during this age of all these proposed reforms and the kings trying to increase royal power, you know, these magnates, they would do everything in their power to undermine him. And it became commonplace that the magnates would show up at the Sedgian meetings with their, with their military retinues to enforce their blockages and their will in the session. And the king or various kings, I should say, would decide to counter this by putting these magnates' rivals as the marshals. But now all you have is a divided military. You know, these magnates and the, these marshals, they become more interested in fighting themselves rather than their external enemies. And ironically, despite all these devastating wars going on, the the nobles and the people of the Commonwealth 
tend to believe that the issues are not with their military. It's not, you know, they don't need to focus on their rivals, really. They think the most important issue is to limit the king's power and to stop these royalist reforms. And, you know, during this period, the nobles' paranoia of absolutist power is just going through the roof because around the Commonwealth, you have all these absolutist coups and revolutions. During this period, the Danes, they become an absolute monarchy. The nobles are stripped of everything. Sweden has the same deal. The Russians, they've already been an autocratic society. Same thing with the Austrians, the Ottomans. And so everywhere around them, the nobles have been losing their power and their rights and stuff. And so this makes the nobles double down in Poland. They're on just this righteous path to protect their constitution and the rights of the citizens. So aside from all this internal stuff going on, you know, I just wanted to hammer home like the reasons, like why the Commonwealth just is struggling to change here, why the reforms are never able to go through and why there's so much opposition, because these things that made the Commonwealth so great in its early years have now become a very crippling weakness as the years go by. And it is is proven that its society and its functions as a state are ceasing to be effective at all. It's completely dysfunctional now. So yeah, anyways, as John Sobieski dies in 1697, there's a man by the name Augustus the Strong that gets elected the next okay year. hold on okay a drink to john sobieski because while his internal policies may have been entirely dicked up god that boy was fucking hard dude okay so to there to the polish philosopher king and then now we're gonna get into that fucking steel bending womanizing banging off got like 20 bastards that that great elector of saxony bro tell the people about augustus dude so augustus the strong so this this election is is quite interesting right because this one is a close election it's not clear-cut like michael and john sobieski this dude is the elector of saxony and He's not just elector of Saxony at any old time. This is like Saxony at the peak of its power, right? Its its people have recovered somewhat from the Thirty Years' War. Its troops are the veterans of just countless campaigns. Its its infantry is top notch. That Saxon line, baby. Yeah, and this guy Augustus, you know, he gets his name. Because th- this dude supposedly would just snap horseshoes in half with his bare hands. This guy just, this man is the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> just into fox tossing, which is fucked up. But, yeah, I don't like that at all. But, yeah, this is just, yeah, he's just, he, this he's dude. You want to call him a brute, but he's not a brute, dude. Like, he's, yeah, this guy's yeah. wild. He's a wild boy. And so with this election going on, we previously, you know, just mentioned how during Sobieski's reign, there's this French and Austrian faction dividing the nobility. And then, of course, you got the royalist noble factions causing 
divisions there. And, you know, so the, the same thing is no different with his election, right? Because you have Augustus the Strong, you know, the elector of Saxony, and he is backed by the Austrians, the Rus- Russians, and he's financed by these Jewish bankers out in Germany. But his main rival for the candidacy is none other than a blood prince of the House of Bourbon, backed by Louis the Fourteenth, And these guys, they're both making all the necessary bribes. I say these guys. I'll say Augustus the Strong and Louis the Fourteenth, Because this, um, the French candidate, he's just kind of, um, how should I say it? Like an indulgent waste. Okay, calm down. He was semi-good on the battlefield. And did you say his name already? Like who we're talking about? Oh, this uh, is yeah, well, Francois. This is uh, Francois Louis de Bourbon. So this dude, yeah, this is like an immediate family member. He's a yeah, like Devin had said, he's a prince of the blood. This is he's as close like he's as close as you're gonna get to like the royal family of France. Yeah, his so, uncle was Le Grand Conde, that great French general through like the Thirty Years' War of Rockroy. Yeah. But yeah, all right, keep going, bro. But yeah. But, Anyways, he's uh, up there. He's up there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So these these are both Im- important, right, for various reasons. This election's huge because you're either going to have this French influence on the throne or you're going to have the Austrian and Russian influence over there. And the French candidate actually legally ends up winning the election, right? And so he is supposed to be the, the new crown prince or the, the king of the commonwealth. But Augustus the Strong ends up marching into Warsaw and beating him there because the French candidate, he decides to, you know, drag his legs and hang out in France for two months before trying to make a move. But Augustus the Strong, he ends up taking the initiative and marches into Warsaw with his 20,000 veteran Saxons and takes the crown for himself. Out of a movie. Yeah. And so this, the elector, has now become a king in his own right. And he is going to inherit all of these internal problems that have been brewing in the Commonwealth. And what he decides to do in the future years is quite fascinating. But that is going to be a story for another episode. Um, Yeah. Now... In next week's episode, we're going to be talking about what the Danes and Russians are into, what what they're up to during this period, and then eventually the Swedes. Um, But yeah, that's going to be it for this episode. Uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in, and uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Dev. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, of course, bro. You know, I love yeah doing this. Is so much fun. And yeah, thank y'all. Yeah, bro. Y'all, y'all take it easy. Thank you.